Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view on the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is December the 10th, 2018. This is episode 2342 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, that means it is a listener questions and answers show. You send me your feedback to jack at the survival podcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. Here's what we got on deck for today. A lot of stuff, big variety. Uh, number one, we will, we will make good on my threat last week to talk about the issues with home freeze dryers. And to me, it's all about economics and the lack thereof. Uh, but I'll tell you why I don't put you down if you have one. I just, the money computation I do says don't do it. Coincidentally, uh, we have a question on cheap versus high quality dehydrators following that one up. Um, a question on how to set a fair price on your product or service and how to justify it as well. Uh, the Jack, you're a jerk email of the week. This is becoming, uh, since I said I like them, I'm getting more of them than I can handle, but that's a good thing. I picked one to run this week. Maybe we'll run some of the other ones I have in the, the, the basket, so to say, uh, in future shows. If you don't hear your Jack, you're a jerk email, just know I'm probably only going to run one a week. Um, should we praise cops for doing their job properly? Uh, and should we understand maybe sometimes why they do it when other times they don't? Uh, it'll all make sense when we talk about what's going on here. Uh, should you insure your precious metals in your home? I'm talking about insurance, like if somebody steals it or it gets stolen or it gets burned up or whatever, it's covered by insurance like, you know, your furniture is. We'll talk about why the answer to that is probably not. Uh, price increases are coming on Berkey water filtration systems. Just a heads up from the Berkey guy. I'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, how about growing food in abandoned mines? It's the latest idea to save humanity from itself. Lots of mine shafts sitting around over in the United Kingdom. Uh, they want to grow food down there under lights. I'll tell you why. I think it's, in general, a stupid idea. Uh, some follow-up on rebuilding your credit. A uh, listener uh, wrote in with a lot of experience in the banking and credit industry about my thoughts on that with some things like, you're not wrong, but you're wrong. And we'll go ahead and tell you about that because I think he's got some good points. Uh, and when do we introduce children to firearms, and what's a good first gun to do that with? We'll have all of that more in just a moment. Before we dig into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is RidgeWallet.com. Um, I, I, I know I say it all the time when I talk about RidgeWallet, but I love the RidgeWallet. I love having everything I really need on me in one little wallet. And they come either you can get them with a little band to put there like a money clip or a clip to use like a money clip. And... I have carried liner lock pocket knives, you know, here and here and there and yonder most of my adult life. So when I saw that clip, I was like, hmm, I bet that it worked really good as a pocket clip. So what I do is I take the money clip one and I use that clip and I just like a liner lock uh, knife and keep that in my pocket. And my wallet's always right there. Uh, where I can get to it. I'm also protected from identity theft. Uh, there is a lot of that going on right now. For about eight to ten dollars, you can buy the parts you need on eBay to build a little sniffer wand and steal credit card identities by walking around wanding people's ass and handbags. With the Ridge Wallet, that can't happen. It also just looks cool. It's kind of like right in line with the kind of modern survivalist, you know, urban prepper mindset and minimalist attitude. Uh, it was successfully launched uh, quite a few years ago now on Kickstarter, sold just tons and tons of them there because uh, people right away said, yeah, this product makes sense. They have some other cool stuff 
uh, on their site, including a, a great backpack day pack. It's awesome. Uh, cell phone cases, backup power stuff for your mobile devices. Really cool company and a discount for members of the MSB. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. Next up, we're going to have a question on precious metals today. Uh, when it comes to where should I get my precious metal, I don't have to think about it at all. That's an easy one, JM Bullion. Why? Okay, so you have a silver company, silver and gold company, that has been in business for years and years and years and has proven itself reliable. You have a company that has better pricing in general than the biggest silver houses out there like Monex and Atmex. And you have a company where if anything does go wrong, I can send an email to the president, Michael, and he will respond to it. Generally, within about 15 minutes, I'll get a response from Michael on any kind of an issue. So why the hell would you... Oh, oh, you get free, you get free shipping on all your orders. Oh, and, and you get a discount from the MSB. So why the hell would I recommend anybody else? I, I would actually like to hear a compelling reason that I would recommend you and, you know, buy day to day, uh, in general, your silver or gold bullion from anybody other than our sponsor, Jam Bullion. Oh, oh, and they sponsored the show for like seven years now. So. Yeah, that's kind of where I recommend you get your silver and gold. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Remember, you do need to get your discount through the MSB. And there's, you know, there's an example. So recently, somebody emailed me and said, hey, I, uh, I tried to use the discount code for jambullion, and it didn't work. And uh, I was told something, and I went, that something is not true. So I emailed uh, Michael and CC'd the customer who had asked about it. And it was like two minutes And Michael was getting on an, he's like, I'm getting on an airplane right now. I will fix this. And uh, then he had to basically not only make sure that it got fixed, but also explain to the employee that gave the customer the wrong information. No, that's not how we do things. Uh, but he took care of it. Yeah, Jam Bullion. I'm a fan. I think if you become their customer, you will be too. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Next, let's take a look at this day in history. Uh, all the way back... In the year 1915, Ford built its one millionth car. On December 10th, 1915, the one millionth Ford car rolls off the assembly line at Ridge uh, River Road plant in Detroit. At first, Henry Ford built his cars like every other automaker, did one at a time, but his factory's efficiency and output steadily increased. And after he introduced a moving assembly line in 1913, the company's productivity soared. Ford was determined what he built uh, to build what he called a motor car for the great multitude, and that's just what he did. By mass producing just one kind of car from 1908 on, the car was the Model T Ford. It could take advantage of economies of scale that were unavailable to smaller car makers and pass the savings on to its customers. Between 1908 and 1927, uh, Ford sold more than 15 million Model Ts in all. They cost $850 at first, uh, about $20,000 in today's money. But by the end of the run, Ford had managed to reduce the price to $300, or about $3,700 in today's money. No one paid much attention to the one millionth milestone. With 25 assembly plants in a big factory in Detroit assembling so many Ford cars a day, the Ford Times said, quote, we passed the millionth mark without knowing it. Uh, when the 10 millionth mark came, on the other hand, uh, it traveled back and forth from New York to San Francisco and from Los Angeles to Chicago in the summer of 1924, inspiring Ross's celebrations everywhere it went, The company even made a movie of the Goodwill Tour called uh, Fording the Lincoln Highway. Along with the 15 millionth Ford in 1927 came another milestone, the company's announcement that it was discontinuing its classic but no longer beloved Model T. Uh, compared to that news, the release of the 20 millionth Ford was fairly dull. Emblazoned with the words 20 millionth and the Ford logo on both sides of the top, the car went on a national barnstorming tour in 1931 and directly to the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Um, 
I want to kind of point something out about this. So this is 1915, and Ford is releasing its one millionth car, uh, selling it for a price equivalent in today's money of about 3700 bucks. Yeah. Um, if you find a picture of New York City in 1901, you will see maybe one car on a street, one horseless carriage, and you'll see horses everywhere. Um, one of the m most uh, difficult things to do to maintain New York City before the automobile was cleaning up all the horse shit. There's you know, a multitude of jobs just involved in cleaning up horse shit. If you look at a picture of New York City in 1915, all you see is cars. This is technology today. This is the same, like, uh, one of my laws of life. If you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, look at what happened yesterday. Um, automation, driverless vehicles, electric cars, etc. All the things that people say, well, they're not really coming. It's going to be just like this. And each one has its own timeline. Don't get me wrong, it's not all at the same time. Each one of these things has its own timeline. But it's going to seem like overnight, oh, well, there's a million, there's, there's, there's 15 million, there's 20 million. That's how it's going to be. And we are actually well underway in most of those venues. And it is going to come at increasing rates. And then everybody will be like, well, I knew it. Uh, and those people that say that will be the ones that have most resisted it. That's part of why we look at history to, to realize it's not just about you know the mistakes. It's about the patterns and, and, and the recreation of patterns over and over again in times throughout human history. With that, let's go ahead and get into your feedback for today's show. I, I, I think this is a, an interesting question. I've heard a lot about it from a lot of you guys, and I, I've kind of held my tongue on it so far uh, because I don't have a really high positive opinion on them. So this comes from uh, some weird name. The guy, I'm going to call him Tom because the name in his email doesn't make any sense as a real name. Anyway, this is, this is what he says. Uh, he says, what are the pros and cons of a home freeze dryer for the homestead retreat? He provides me to a link to one on Amazon. Says we find that preserving meat, fish, dairy, and particularly eggs is time-consuming and somewhat suspect for taste and nutrition. Mountain House meals are salty and menu-limited. We prefer cheesy shard and street nut tacos, etc. We grow a kitchen garden, always have a surplus, but always comes in a tsunami. Fruit and berries end up as jam or deer food in the end. A high-power demand of electrical device would not be useful off-grid. That's true, big time. I guess I won't know until I try one, but maybe it has residual resale value. Maybe a niche home business preserving mushrooms or herbs. In Asia, they preserve their deceased pets. guess it depends if the $3,000 cost is the same as your next weekend getaway or your next car. We value your opinion. Thanks. Uh, so, so, Tom, uh, my opinion of home freeze dryers is that you will never recoup the economic investment in one unless maybe you do find a way to sell something to somebody that you probably charge them more than they should be paying for it and they're willing to do what you did to help pay for your mistake. Um, that said, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe if you had two or three families uh, that were sharing one of these things, maybe that would help make it a little bit more viable, etc. Okay, so let's let's just talk about the cost of the thing in the first place. And, and let's just understand what that means that we're going to pay this much for it so a medium size one uh that he had a link to is 2695 bucks it's called 2700 so this thing's 2700 and it looks like kind of a compact dryer for clothing like a mini one for like a tiny house or something like that so 
this thing will do about four to seven pounds. So let's call it five pounds of food per cycle. And a cycle in this thing is about 36 hours. And I have a link to, so I did a calculation. And I came up with about the average person in America would spend $3.60 on electricity per batch. And uh, then I looked up a guy that actually ran a kilowatt meter and did his in a cycle, and he came up with like $3.49. I have a link to that video. So I'm going to say that my number's pretty good, right? Call it $3.50. So every time you run this thing, it's $3.50, okay? And it can run about once every three days to complete a cycle. So if, if you somehow figured out, and again, like to, to maximize and get your initial three grand back, we got to run it a lot, right? If we only run it like once, I only, only run it once a month, well, you're never getting your money back. You could, whatever, you're, whatever you're making, you could have probably went out and bought uh, for the price that you're spending on it. But if you if pretty much ran it 24-7, it costs about 35 to 40 bucks a month to run the thing. Um, so you're going to like 400 to $500 a year in electrical costs. Then the stuff you put into it, now this guy says he has a, a garden and they get a big surplus and everything. But in general, the stuff you put into it, um, you know, it's going to cost money. You don't just get it for free. And if you get a huge amount of, of, of fruit, let's say, all at one time, since it takes three days per cycle and you can only do about five pounds per cycle, you, know, you, can, only, you can only run about five pounds a cycle. Uh, and then fruit starts going bad relatively quickly. You see what I'm saying? Like, So if you ended up with, let's say, 50 pounds of fruit, you'd have to run 10 cycles. It would take a month to do that with the mid-sized unit. And I, I don't know that the big one does that much more. Um, plus you got another 35, 40 bucks in energy costs in it. Plus you got the time and labor to prep all the food and get it ready to go. Uh, then you got to, I, I, I don't know, man. I just, I don't see the economics of this coming back. Now, the only thing that makes me open to it for this individual, um, they're specifically saying they want to preserve meat, fish, dairy, and eggs. The way to look at freeze-drying as a thing all by itself, it is the most expensive and best long-term food preservation method we have. Nothing is as good, but nothing is as expensive. So if that's really what you want, I'm okay with it. But I think the average person really needs to sit back and think about whether or not that this makes sense before they put this much money into something. Um, when I look at something like the Excalibur 9 trade dehydrator, when you look at the power specs on that, a lot of people make a lot of uh, a big deal about the fact that it, it draws about 600 watts when you turn it on. Well, it only does that until it reaches the temperature uh, that you're attempting to maintain within the dehydrator. And I generally dehydrate my food at 95 to 105 degrees, not 165 degrees, not 150 degrees. And no, I don't care if I'm making beef jerky or something. It's still 95 to 105 degrees is plenty warm enough. And if you're doing it around here, uh, until you get to about this time of year, you're only asking the unit to either maintain the existing ambient temperature or maybe increase it by 5 to 10 degrees. So most of the time, you're only running a fan. 
So you're, you're looking at about, to run a cycle of about six to eight hours, you're looking at about 13 cents a batch. Uh, if you're running something that's really energy intensive and you have to run it for 12 hours, uh, you're still looking at with an Excalibur dehydrator that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're probably running about 50 to 70 cents at the most. So economically, and then you're starting out with a unit that costs somewhere between $100 and $200, depending on what you buy, versus $2,600. So again, this fellow writing in is saying, I want to do meat and fish. Okay, the thing is, like, how much meat and fish do you have? And how much is it going to cost you? And is it really worth doing? You see, that's, that, that's another thing altogether, because... Your free bounty that comes from your garden is vegetables and berries and fruits. You buy a lot of freeze-dried raspberries for $2,600. And again, you have the energy and the time and the prep cost. But when we look at dehydration versus freeze-drying, yes, freeze-drying is superior, but for what? Here's what I mean. Let's say you have an abundance of carrots. If you throw carrots in a dehydrator, they will store for 20 years in a jar. When you make a soup out of them, they will taste like a fresh carrot. Is a freeze-dried carrot better? Maybe a tiny bit, but is it worth the added cost? No. If we're talking about green beans, a freeze-dried green bean is way better once reheated and, and rehydrated than uh, a dehydrated green bean. So that's the other thing you have to look at is the quality of what you're producing and what is the majority of what you'll do with it. Uh, one of our, our, our you know longtime listeners and friends of the community, Jake, Uh, out of Tennessee, has one of these things. Um, he brought some uh, persimmon that he had uh, made into a pulp and then freeze-dried uh, for like a mead, ma a persimmon mead-making kit. And he was able to barter some of those on the barter blind. And I thought, you know, that's that works pretty well. I mean, I can understand why. But if you were to just... Um, dehydrate persimmon, I think you'd end up at about the same place as far as the quality of mead you can make out of it. Now, he did come up with an interesting idea. Um, we had uh, John Dowie here, and he did microgreens. And I haven't heard from Jake yet if he tried it yet, but, but John uh, had me grow out like six trays of microgreens so that we had it for our party day and for people to eat and to taste and to see and all that. And one thing that we always do when we do microgreens is we do uh, sunflower uh, microgreens. And, and what Jake said is, I wonder what it would be like if you took a whole bunch of those and threw that in the, the freeze dryer as, as a snack. Uh, you know, a little sun, salt and a little crunch, and maybe those would be really, I don't know. You know, it seems like a lot of energy to make that, but maybe there's some niche product that you could come up with out of them. Uh, you know, bananas are something that a lot of people uh, feed kids, bananas, apples, et cetera, stuff like that. Freeze-dried versions versus dehydrated versions. Yes, the freeze-dried versions are superior. There's there's no doubt, but it's not like the dehydrated ones suck. So I, I think that this is one of those things that if it will allow you to do things that you want to do and you are okay with the cost to do that, then it's then it, then and you have the money and you're not going into debt for it, then I'm fine with it. If you are going to try to make an economic case for it, that you will ever get your money back on it, I do not believe that you will. I do not believe from a time and energy and initial cost stance that freeze-drying scales down right now, for now. It is possible, 
We just talked about economy of scale with the Model T car. That if this idea catches on hard enough with people that people will end up wanting this product more and other companies will begin to manufacture their own versions of it and the cost can get driven down and maybe the size of the unit up. Of course, more size equals more energy. This is a very, see the thing is freeze drying is a very energy intensive process. It takes a lot of energy to do this. Um, because, because it does. Let's just leave it at that way. Again, 36 hours. Uh, is the average processing time for any item that would go in your freeze dryer. And again, I just don't think it really makes a ton of sense economically. In fact, I don't think it makes, I think it, like, I'm big on Excel, and when you're spending thousands of dollars on something, I think it's worth running an Excel spreadsheet. So I think if you do that and you start taking, and you're honest about how much you can come up with and what the cost of that is and the value of your time, And you plug all that thing, all that into an Excel spreadsheet. I don't think you ever reach a point where the two lines cross and you go cash flow positive. I, I just don't. There could be a unique scenario where you figure out how, um, but I, I, I wouldn't bet on it. And I would, I would kind of lowball the estimates. I guess is the way I would go and highball the time and the cost. And what is your commitment to using this thing? You know, if you're if you're going to use it twice a month, you know. You, you can process about 10 pounds of food. And so, but then it's very important that when you price, well, well if, can I buy this? And if you can't buy it, okay, you know, okay. Because, uh, you know, you said Mountain House salty and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but that's if you buy the pre-mixed, like, beef stroganoff or whatever. You know, you, if you buy Mountain House um, freeze-dried beef cubes, it's pretty much beef freeze-dried. That's all that it is. Well, how much beef does that number 10 can of cubes equate? I'm not sure. I never did the math on it, but I bet you it's it's I bet you it's more than five pounds. So then can you even buy the five pounds of beef for the cost? That see that's the way that this has to become at. Same with you know the, the the chicken cubes and the sausage crumbles and all that stuff like that. Like there's a cost to the underlying product, either in time, effort, or money, or all three, and that all has to go in if you're going to make a economic case for this. Usually I just do the the uh, emails in the order they come in, but I'm, I did one little rearrangement here. I first I did this one I just covered first because we it got left off last week. And then this kind of so wraps into it that I wanted to kind of include this segment as a follow-up. This comes from Nate in Spokane. Nate says, I'm thinking of getting a cheap $30 or $40 dehydrator before the upcoming gardening season to see if I like dehydrating before I invest in something expensive like an Excalibur. What are your thoughts on buying something cheap to start? We currently just freeze our excess produce from the garden. From what I understand, you have to use dehydrated veggies in a similar way. As frozen veggies, i.e. soups, casseroles, because the texture gets kind of weird after the process. Since the end use would be nearly the same for both preservation techniques, I want to make sure it's something I would have fun doing before spending a lot of money on a niche machine. The question can lend itself to all sorts of other spending decisions where the budget options are they are clearly junk, but you get your foot in the door compared with expensive pro-level tools uh, that you are inexperienced with but could possibly end up using a lot. Thanks for a great show, Nate in Spokane. Okay, so Nate, the first thing I would say is because a lot of people don't think like you, a lot of people do go out and buy something and then they regret it and then they want to get rid of it. 
I would check Craigslist and let go and stuff like that and see if maybe you can't find, um, you know, uh, an Excalibur dehydrator for the price of like, you know, some cheap infomercial $30 or $40 one. So then my other caveat would be, since you know you're basically buying a piece of junk, a $30 or $40 dehydrator, $50 bucks even, junk, um, check those same locations, see if anybody's selling one of those. Um, you know, before you will need one, you got a lot of time. Gardening season next year and getting to the harvest point where you have a need, like, You know, stop at yard sales and stuff like that. You may be able to find one of these things for $10. Uh, check Goodwill. People get rid of their kitchen crap all the time. They dump it on Goodwill. They get a receipt. They take it off their taxes. Um, you know, a lot. I think most people that take stuff to Goodwill don't even worry about the tax deduction. Uh, they just, and I think, honestly, um, very few people will be using those deductions in, in the coming years. Because the new tax plan doubled the standard deductions, and the average American is not going to itemize their taxes um, at all. Because you're, you're going to have to cover $24,000 in itemization for a, a family of two before you even make it profitable to do so. Uh, we won't itemize. We will itemize our business expenses and certain things like that. But I'll, in fact, we have a pretty creative CPA, just a little aside here, that... By doing certain things, we can take things like our insurance on our home and prorate some of it back in as a business expense, the same way you do with a home office expense, whereas you can't do that when you deduct your mortgage interest, but it probably won't make sense for us to deduct our mortgage interest this year. It, it's, it's a weird thing. So, like, so Goodwill, people just dump. They use it as like, I need to get rid of this crap. And I'll feel good about myself, so I'll take it down there to Goodwill. So Goodwill's always a good place to check for stuff like that. Um, salad spinners, all kinds of crap you can find at Goodwill. I want to say a little thing for Goodwill right now, too. Uh, I am hard on charities that waste the donations, uh, their, their donors' money. I, I really am. I, I do not like the American Red Cross. They took in like a half a billion dollars, $500 million for Haiti, and did almost nothing with it at all down there while their CEO flies around on a G5 jet. Uh, I will not give a, I will not give a penny to the American Red Cross. Uh, I think they are one of the worst charities out there. And recently I saw a thing on Facebook showing charities you shouldn't give your money to, and I was happy to see American Red Cross on there. Um, one of the charities that got listed as being one not to give anything to is Goodwill. And the reason being that they don't put a lot of money into direct programs. So, like, if you give money to Salvation Army, most of that money gets spent actually delivering something to somebody in need. Uh, and if you do it with Goodwill, they, they don't really do that. Well, Goodwill doesn't take in very, takes in actually very little in cash donations. They, they don't, they take almost nothing in in cash. Um, they are a secondhand retail store, and their business is their charity. Most of the people that work for Goodwill, let's say lots of the people that work for Goodwill, really can't get a job any other place. Uh, they have certain challenges and situations like that. They get employed, and the store gets its inventory in the form of donations, and the employment that they do, by and large, in many ways, is their charity. 
And so I, I think it's actually one of the better charities out there because uh, they deal mainly by having to deliver value service to an end user who actually, through acquiring something, helps support a charity. So just a little aside for Google there as well. But um, I would recommend taking a look at that. Here's my problem with this. I know that you can go buy an Excalibur dehydrator for $130 to $190, depending on what you buy. And I know that it will last you probably for the rest of your life. I know that if the motor burns out during the warranty period, that you'll just call them up and they'll send you a new one, and a screwdriver in five seconds you can replace it. Uh, that warranty period is five years. I know that if you took a in good condition Excalibur dehydrator and threw it on Craigslist for like $75, bucks, uh, you would probably get that money pretty quickly. Um, if you bought a $130 one and used it and sold it for $75 to $100 bucks because you decided you didn't like it, you would probably be economically at about the same place because the disposal value of the cheap one is next to nothing. I guess you could go down to Goodwill and donate it to them and take the tax deduction if And it's a big if you would even still qualify to do that under the new tax plan. So it's hard for me to recommend that. But then again, when I look at it and say, you know, you can get um, a cheap dehydrator on Amazon for $30 to $50. Bucks. Um, it's $30. Bucks. You know, it's it, it, if you're okay with that, you know, a lot of people look at that and say, you know, if I go out to the bar and have a couple of drinks with a buddy, I spend more than that anyway. Then Okay. Um, from a standpoint, though, of making a, a purchase decision on a dehydrator, I, I just want to be clear that I don't recommend anything above Excalibur. I don't care if it costs more or less. I don't recommend anything above Excalibur at all, infinity, period. Um, I just don't. So if you're buying the junk when you're buying the and, and I, I actually appreciate the sentiment. Like, why should I go tie up one to two hundred dollars in something that I may end up deciding it just really isn't for me? Um, but another thing to look at then is like, does any do any of your friends have one? See if you can borrow one. I, I think that dehydrators, just like you know, we just talked about uh, freeze dryers. These are the perfect product to have in a kind of a a, a share. Uh, shared group. Um, they are not something you use every day. I mean, mine sits, you know, nine and a half out of ten days a year. It's sitting there doing nothing. When I do need to use it, a lot of times because I have so much crap and I have to move stuff around, I'm like, where did I put it? And I have to go find it. You know, like, okay, there it is, but what did I do with all the... So I took the trays out of it. Where are those? I mean, like, so if if you have a group of people that all garden and stuff like that, then I think looking at a dehydrator like as a share product I think makes a lot of sense as well. Um, but I unlike what we just talked about, you get your money back with a dehydrator. You know, you're talking a hundred to two hundred bucks and nine trays. A lot of people look at the, the Excalibur and go, "Well, that's not really that big. Nine trays is fifteen square feet. It's fifteen square feet because people are like, well, their trays are really you can't dehydrate really thick stuff." It has to be cut thin anyway. It's a lot of food. It is a ton of food that an Excalibur will dehydrate for you. So I, I do think they're good investments if you're going to use them. If you really want to go cheap at first, go ahead. 
Next up, I got an email here from Crystal. Crystal says, uh, my question is this, Jack. What is your advice about placing a fair value on the services one provides in a business or a side hustle? I have heard both you and Nicole Sauce briefly talk about how you coached her to raise her coffee prices when she was first getting started with Holler Roast. I'd love to hear more about your reasoning and process behind setting one's rates. Let's start with Nicole. So she showed me her numbers, and I went, you have to raise your price $2 a pound to make this worth doing. I mean, or you got to take $2, you got to lean out $2 in costs or time. You, this is not worth doing at the price you're selling at. So it, it didn't even, it, it, I'm going to talk about a lot of other stuff here. Okay. But there are, there is, there is that. When you're doing something, you're not doing it just for, like, if you start out and you're doing it for experience and you get some stuff underneath, that's fine. You're testing a market, see what you can do with it, that's fine. But eventually, when you run the numbers, there is a number that you have to hit. And if you can't hit that number, you go do something else or you lean out your efficiency so that your number works. That's number one. Let me read the rest of her question. Personally, I'm a local expert in the writing field. I have written for local newspapers for almost two decades. I've been asked to speak to groups about my writing a number of times, and I'm often approached for assistance when answering questions or composing something for people. What was my writing side hustle currently? My only side hustle, but I am not yet approaching full-time pay with it. I have written a handful of promotional pieces for local business owners. I've even edited a book for a friend this year. However, I have this terrible I-must-hate-money reaction when it comes to time to talk about payment. I tend to undervalue my services that I provide. I'm looking to overcome that and create a pricing list for my services, so I'm ready when approached. Having the structure in place will also help pursue potential clients. I look forward to hearing more about your thoughts on this topic. Thanks, Crystal. So this is the thing that people like Crystal are affected by that other people are not, and it's kind of a reverse thing. So... If you're selling a product that is a material product, there is some cost in the acquisition of that product. Even if you make it yourself, if you if you do leather work, um, the leather, the stitching, the rivets, etc., all the buckles, whatever, cost money, right? If you're doing uh, woodworking, then the wood and the stain and the nails and the glue, and you can take any product that you make and you can say, here's my bill of materials for that. This is how much it costs me to make that, accounting for there's going to be 20% waste in a woodwork situation or whatever, right? So linear feet times 20%, etc. You can, you can calculate the, the pro cost of the product. And most people that go into business for any length of time, more than five minutes anyway, Are, are that do a product do that and they work out like okay I've got 30 bucks in this thing and they know they can't sell for 29 where they fall flat and and the only thing you really have to look at is well what's the value of their time um, and, and and some people say well I like doing it I, I don't care there's still a value to your time if this is a business if it is a hobby which pays for itself, So if you know if you're like me and you like fish tanks, and you go out and acquire all kinds of like rummage sale, throwaway, scavenge stuff for fish tanks, and it lets you build a tank for yourself and two tanks to sell every month, and by the time it's all said and done, you got all your stuff for that month that you kept for free, uh, and you like doing it, it's a hobby, and that's fine. But it's not a business. It's not a side hustle. It has the potential to turn into one. But I'm letting you value your time differently because of what you're doing, why you're doing, and how much time you're spending doing it. When it comes to a business, we have to value our time. And 
I think this is a place where some people that are kind of the raw, raw, self-employment, selling the dream, uh, book sales type people, rich dad, poor dad type things that go all the way to scam, uh, they, they, they come up with like ridiculous numbers that people should value their time at. You know, or your time should be exactly what it would be if you were working a job that you're a highly paid professional for. Well, you know, first of all, let's say you're a uh, computer programmer and what you're doing for a side hustle is uh, some sort of landscaping thing. Well, the, the cost of a landscaper just is less than the cost of a computer programmer. And you're probably a less experienced landscaper than you are a computer programmer. So there's a market rate. What does the market say that a person that does this thing, whatever it is, is worth? And then what is your performance versus the market? Okay. Now, there's two market rates. One is the in general, what, what in general does a copywriter make? And then there's your market rate, which is, actually there's three. So okay, I realize that could be taken the wrong way. So just shelve the, the, the middle for a second. Then the other side of it is, In the market that you're in, what will the consumer bear? What are they willing to pay? No matter how good you are, right? There are, if there, there's a common statement of people like, well, I don't need to buy a Maserati when a Ford will get the job done, right? So people are like, I don't care how good you are. I'm looking to buy a Ford. You're trying to sell me a Maserati or, or, or whatever, you know? I'm trying to buy a Cavalier. You're trying to sell me a Corvette. I don't need a Corvette. I need a Cavalier. I just need to get from point A to point B. And a lot of people, when it comes to services, especially like copywriting and stuff like that, uh, small businesses, etc., and you'd think, well, but now they just don't understand. Well, they do understand. They understand the question you're asking me. In other words, how much money can they make doing what they do? So you could do the most artful, beautiful piece of sales copy ever for a small business company. And if the small business is a local brick-and-mortar business, And every single person in their town walked through and bought that product. There's, it's not going to happen, by the way. There's a finite amount of money they could make. There's only so many of those products they can deliver. So you can only do so much for that company. They're making that calculation as well. And then there is your market rate. In other words, what is an, what is the median and how good are you? Are you as good as the median? Are you not quite as good, quite as experienced? Are you better? So is your market rate then, you know, 0.9 of the existing market, or is it 1.2 of the existing market rate? And you got to factor all of that in. And, and then back to how much will people pay? If people will pay you more, charge more. If people will be happy and pay you more, charge more. As far as a rate sheet, this is the way I feel about when you set prices. If you feel completely comfortable when you look at the price that you set for yourself and you say to yourself, self, you know what? I feel good about that. I think that's a fair price and I think I'm pricing my work uh, accordingly. And that's the right price. Raise your price and ask yourself the question again. How do you feel about the price? And keep raising your price until you say, I don't quite feel com that feels a little bit expensive. That's probably where you should be priced to get started and to figure things out. It is very easy to lower your price, and it's very easy to make a deal and cut a deal. It is very difficult to like have a price and then say, but I'm going to charge you more. And it's always good to be in a position where you can make a little bit of a deal, that you can offer a discount on volume, etc., things like that. 
Because let's say that you set your price where it's profitable but just enough to make it worth doing, and now somebody wants a volume discount. Well, now you go broke faster because now you're not making money. right? So I, I think that all of that has to be factored in. Value of the time, what the, what the market will pay. What, who's competing with you? And what do they charge? And who are their customers? That's something you always have to look at. And then, what is my unique value proposition? Does my widget last longer? Is it the last widget you'll ever buy versus one you're going to buy once every six months? And that's why it costs, if it's the last one you ever buy, and it costs twice as much as the one you buy every six months, it's an easy sell. Because a lifetime cost. You know? Is it, does it, does it, does it provide you guarantees? Does it come with better service? And what is your customer trying to accomplish? Now, I'm going to tell you that I've had enough back and forth with Crystal that I know what Crystal really wants to do is be an author. Well, then, Crystal, you should get off your ass and start writing something. Stop looking to edit somebody else's book. Stop looking to do somebody else's copywriting. Stop looking to ghostwrite somebody else's stuff and go write Crystal's book about the thing that Crystal knows and write Crystal's copy to sell Crystal's book about the thing that Crystal knows. Go start working for Crystal. Because one of my issues when anybody wants to work for me and they want to do something for me that I, I, I know they would actually prefer to do for themselves is generally, well, if you're that good, that I should give you my money to do this for me instead of doing it myself, why aren't you doing it for you? Think about that. Now, I'm not picking on Crystal here. This is a general statement. Um, when people, if you want a side, I want a side hustle, I'd like to go to a full-time business. Well, what do you do? I write. Okay, get writing. Pick a subject. Author, author a book. Whenever you're not working for somebody else, be working in your own book. Sit down, write. What do I write about? I don't know. What is Crystal like? Is there a market for it? There's a market for everything. In 2018, if, if a thousand people are interested in it, there's a market for it. Because those thousand people can become your true fans, and a thousand true fans can support you for the rest of your life if you keep taking care of them. So that's what I really think that a person that's in the business of writing should be doing. And then you set your price based on what you can sell a book for. And then a book sells over and over and over again, especially an evergreen topic book, not something that people buy because right now this subject is hot. But what is a book that, you know, 10 years from now, if somebody was, you know, looking through stuff on Amazon and they looked up a title and they found you as an associated title and they'd say, oh, that's interesting and start reading reviews and go, this, this, this chick's got it going on in this subject XYZ and I want to know more about it. So I'll buy her book. So I think that, that writers should write, Crystal. That's, that's my thought there. And then maybe it'll be easier for you to start setting your prices when you say, well, if I spend the next X hours writing a book uh, over the next two years, it will make me this. Now what does it take to get me to, to not work for me and to work for you? How much more do you have to pay me than what I know I can do for myself before I'll stop working for myself? And that puts you in a position where you can demand more money and justify it, and if the customer doesn't want to pay it, you don't really care. Just my thoughts. Uh, next, my Jack, you're a jerk of the week. It says, this is from Curtis, how dare you, sir? How damn dare you? You must have some nerve sitting there behind that mic blabbling about survivor survival topics for days on end. 
What do you want people to do? Actually heed your advice? Look, man, I don't know what your end game is here, but if you think people are going to take your advice, you're crazy. Why should they do that? Why should they? Why would somebody like myself purchase the Oster Roaster oven that you recommended? Why would I do that and have deliciously flawless Thanksgiving dinner, making my wife extremely happy that her oven was freed up for other things? Why, sir, would I do that? Why would a guy like me take your advice by filling up water bottles and placing them in my stand-up freezer only to have that freezer fail? Having those thermal batteries kept it from thawing out? Your advice saved me hundreds of dollars in lost food. How dare you? Last but certainly not least, my power went out one evening. Thanks to you, I had power. You suggested a simple $50 inverter that allowed me to have lights and a fan running during the outage. The nerve you have, sir. All of this happened to me within the last month. You, sir, are a jerk. Just encouraging real knowledge. Keep it up, jerk. And thanks, Curtis in Tucson, Arizona. I kind of like that. Jerk. Just encouraging real knowledge. We're going to have to do something with that. But, Curtis, good for you, man. I'm glad that you uh, you found value in what we're doing here. And I would love to hear what makes me a jerk in your eyes, folks, um, for making you or encouraging you or getting you to do something that's paid off. Or just if you actually think I am a jerk in the conventional sense of the word, you can tell me that, too. I might even read it on air once in a while for a good laugh. Anyway, um, next comes in from Jamie. Jamie says, this video shows a drunk driving arrest of a Washington, Michigan sheriff's officer uh, by officers in a neighboring county. It's amazing to listen to the back and forth between the offending officer and the arresting officer. The guy was so drunk he could hardly talk. He had numerous calls placed to 911 due to his reckless driving, yet he fully expected to be released without charge. Kudos to the arresting officer for not caving in, but you know a high percentage of the times he would have been swept under the rug. Jamie. Jamie, let me tell you. The ass-covering of cops by other cops is huge. It's huge. And... It is a double standard, and it's not acceptable. Now, I don't ever claim to be able to judge a man's heart. And the cop that arrested this guy did his job by the book the right way. I, I Now, if you watch the video, I have a link in the show notes. It really won't be very effective to play the audio of it, uh, given how long it is and the way it worked out um, for you uh, on the air. So I'm not going to do that. You can watch it yourself if you want to. Again, it's in the, in the notes. Um, but he may have given the guy a little bit more leeway with not jerking his ass out of the car and putting his face to the ground than he would have an average person. Just a little bit of professional courtesy, maybe more. But overall, he did his job on the book. And I think that the way he handled it was the way he should have handled it with anybody. So when I say professional courtesy, more like he did his job the right way because it was a cop he was dealing with. Um, because I, I, I have seen people jerked out of a vehicle and shoved to the ground and, you know, tased or clubbed or shit for less. So just there is that. But I'm going to tell you, and again, I don't know. This guy, if he pulled me over this drunk, might have handled it exactly the same as I did. And if so, kudos. Exactly. What you, that's what you should do. Um, but I've also seen at least half a dozen leaked videos of cops finding a guy drunk in a vehicle or other situations where you or I would go to jail, realizing the guy's a cop and covering it up. There was one, and the video made its rounds on Facebook. I tried to find it. I couldn't. It came from a couple of years ago. This guy was drunk in a car, like 
over on the side of the road, like pulled over in the, you know, like the, not, I want to say the medium, more like the shoulder. He was drunk off his ass, completely passed out. He had his penis out of his pants for whatever reason, I don't know, and was just slumbering off in his car. A um, couple different, co like, you know, request on scene assistance type thing because they didn't really know what they were dealing with. So it's multiple cops are there and they're ready to do this guy up hard. They're like, they're just like, look at this. This is disgusting. Put your dick in your pants, that type of thing, you know. And I like, just can't even speak. He doesn't tell him he's a cop because he's too drunk to even do that. And all of a sudden you hear one of the officers go, oh, shit, we got a problem. And the other one goes, what? He goes, he's a cop. And they hit it. And apparently one of the officers or someone in the department didn't like that that's what was done and leaked that video. I don't remember exactly if it was a body cam or what it was, but it's it's very clear evidence that these guys covered up a guy they would have busted any other other circumstances if he was a cop. So here's my healthy skepticism on this one. Uh, back to the email. And had numerous calls placed to 911 due to his reckless driving. I am not saying that this cop you know, would have cut the guy a break, but any potential that he would have got a break cut was ended when there were multiple 911 calls. So now I'm Officer Smith, and I'm cruising down the road, and I get a call. We got multiple calls from, you know, citizens that there's a truck swerving or whatever, and I, 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 I yeah, responding, boom, and, and I'm in touch with dispatch. I'm in touch with 911. I'm in touch with my supervisor at this point. Everybody knows. And I pull the guy over. I have to explain why this happened. In that situation, he's not getting his ass covered. Not on the street anyway. There could be some sort of inner workings, you know, backdoor DA leniency that you would. I mean, that can happen. But you're not. No, you're getting done up. You're getting arrested. Your vehicle's getting towed. I don't care if you're a U.S. Marshal, a cop, a, you know, a sheriff. It doesn't matter. You're once that happens, you're getting you're you're not getting leniency. You're not getting any kind of professional courtesy. And here's why that's actually important beyond the whole you know pot call and the kettle black and things like that. Um, that goes for you too. You as a as an individual private citizen. I have, you know, I'm hard on cops that are bad cops. I have seen cops use a great deal of discretion in choosing not to do something they could have. And I applaud them for it when they do, when it makes sense. I've seen cops go, dude, put the grass away, get out of here. Where they could have easily done a guy up on possession. Back when it was a, you know, like it was a bigger deal than it is today. I've seen stuff like that. You know, I've seen cops pull a guy over to speeding. For instance, I got pulled over one time by a guy, a cop, you know, and I was speeding. I was doing like 60, but it was like a 45. It was also like a, you know, a, a three lanes on each side road, middle of the night, no traffic lights, nobody's out, you know, and the guy pulled, he never even asked for my ID. He, he comes up, he looks at me, and as soon as he looks at me, I guess he figures, okay, this guy's not drinking. And uh, he says, if I let you go, Will you slow the F down? And he didn't say the F. He said the word. And I said, yes, sir, I will. He goes, okay, then do that. Turn around, back, got back in his car. So I've seen cops use discretion. When what you've done has put you on the radar 
with the knowledge of others within the system, specifically that are not on site, that is probably not happening. So this also lines up with when you shut the F up. And part of that is you do not argue whether you're right or wrong with a cop on the side of the road. It's a dangerous situation for them in a modicum of ways beyond you. They're not going to be very reasonable with it. Now, I do think there are times when you're told you have to, not you're under arrest, not you're being cited, like you have to do this or you have to do that, and you know damn well you're within your legal rights. I do think there's a reasonable way to be decent and, just, and explain to an officer, you know, why you're within your legal rights and why you don't think you should have to stop. But once they detain you, cite you, whatever, you need to just shut up. You really do, because pleading your case is not going to probably do you any good. It might make matters worse. And again, if you're in a situation where you have somehow endangered other people on the road, and you've the reason you're pulled over isn't the officer observed something, but 911 was contacted, and that officer was directed to your location and pulled you over because of that response, he's going to have to have some sort of complete and plausible explanation as to what went on. And if that person's intoxicated, he can't let him go. Imagine if this guy tried to let this guy... There's no way that this, that this is a reasonable thing that any and you could ever expect any other outcome. And, and kind of I'll sum this up with... I, I, I really don't think we should be praising police officers for doing their job correctly. Any more than we should praise a football coach for doing his job correctly. The, the football coach gets praised when his team wins the championship. The cop gets praised when they go above and beyond the call of duty in some form of heroism or some form of, you know, community involvement or some form of being, you know, more than just, a, and, and I, I think that we do need it. This is the truth with, and I was a soldier, so I'm speaking of my own now. Soldiers, etc. Teachers, etc. Anybody. Doing your job the way you're expected is not something that should get you praise. It should something that gets you a paycheck. Doing your job improperly should be something that gets you dismissed or fired. Doing your job in an exceptional manner above and beyond what should be expected of you. Not what is, but what should be expected of you. That's where you get praise. So I think some reason people are, and there are a lot, if you look read the comments in this video, a lot of people are praising this cop for doing the quote-unquote right thing, um, not even taking into account what I said, um, You shouldn't get praised for doing the right thing. But they're doing it because, and this is telling, the expectation was that he would have done the wrong thing. Next up, uh, I got an email here from Nate. Nate says, uh, what are your thoughts on including precious metals in your house and your home insurance policy? I'm starting to build up a decent amount of silver where it would suck to get stolen or destroyed in a fire. I'm going to be getting a little firebox soon and a hiding spot for it. That made me think about whether it would be worth insuring or not Con currently. It's just on the shelf in my gun safe. I'm not too concerned about the man knowing I have it, but it's nice having anonymity regarding it. Uh, thanks for the show, Nate. Okay, so Nate, look, um, in general, your your regular insurance, your homeowner's insurance, will not cover very much in the regards of bullion, numismatic coins, like somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand bucks. It may be worth a discussion with your insurance agent to, you know, do you offer this and find out what it would cost. Uh, there are third-party insurers. I have a link to one in the show notes today, and it, it says in giant letters, uh, note, I am not endorsing this, but it's a company that does precious metal insurance, and uh, it doesn't seem that ridiculous in cost. Uh, 
Um, they have kind of a, a scaled thing, insuring $20,000 of, of your value. Uh, and I think that can either be uh, in a known appraised numismatic value or a raw bullion value, either or, $125. Uh, $100,000, $350 a year. So it's not that expensive. I just don't know how reliable this company's insurance is. Is it true insurance? Uh, things like that. I also have a link to an article by JM Bullion, our uh, source for precious metals, and, and they generally say that you probably shouldn't buy third-party insurance, and I really trust those guys. Uh, they also talk about um, safe deposit boxes and insured facilities that are private storage companies. Um, when you look at something like that, if the insurance is valid... Uh, it may cost more to have private storage than it does just to have the insurance on it. Um, let me say something here. It's going to sound awful, but it's true, and it's part of why companies generally wouldn't want to insure your silver or your gold in your home. Insurance fraud of that type is actually very easy to do. And, and, and Dorothy and I came to an epiphany one time and realized how easy it would be to commit insurance fraud by using insurance as it was designed. Dorothy lost a rather expensive ring. And we tore the house apart trying to find it. And we, to this day, we do not know what happened to it. Fortunately, it wasn't a wedding ring, but it was an expensive ring, uh, over $1,000. And we had insurance on her jewelry, and she mentioned to uh, the lady at the insurance office that we, we had when we lived down in Arlington, Texas, uh, while, we used to, she used to drop in and, and physically pay the bill to save the stamp because it was like on the way to her office that she drove right past this, this other office. Um, and she mentioned it to her and said, you know, I don't think insurance. And the lady said, of course it does. And, and so we had had that ring appraised. We gave them the appraisal, told them the ring was stolen. Or no, I'm sorry, it was just lost. We, it, that it wasn't stolen. We have no idea. We didn't know if it was or it wasn't. It's just gone. And they cut us a check. Like, holy crap, you could just do that? And to some degree, you can. So, I can understand where you'd want to limit your liability. Um, my view Firebox, once you get over a few hundred dollars in silver, totally worth the investment, and you can put other things in it. A larger box than you need for your silver is a good idea because now paperwork and other things can go in there. And finding, like you said, the appropriate hiding place, uh, storage in floors is a great idea. Uh, there's almost nothing that could happen to your home where your silver would be unrecoverable. Floor safes are a great idea. Just saying. There are companies that will come out, they will core a hole in the foundation of your home, they will insert a tube down into there, pretty long tube, you can fill it with valuables and a face for a safe drops into that, a combination safe, and four huge bolts go out into the concrete. Um, if your house burned down, everything in there would probably still be safe. Uh, certainly things like silver and gold. At the worst, you'd have the melt value of whatever is in there. Um, I think that's a better approach. Safe deposit boxes. I want to talk about those as a valid option for a minute here. In general, a safe deposit box at a bank uh, that you're a customer of can be had for between $12 and $30 a year, a fairly sizable one. 
and even J.M. Bullion's article, they make a big deal out of the fact that the a safe deposit box is not FDI insured. You have no insurance of what's in your safe deposit box. Additionally, um, the bank has no knowledge of what's in your safe deposit box, so you can understand why you wouldn't why they wouldn't insure it. You you know when you When you get a safe deposit box, if you've never done this before, there'll be a big vault at your bank. You go there, the, the vaults generally kept open during the day, and there'll be a box. It looks like mailboxes. And each one of those boxes will have two keyholes. And you'll have a key, and the bank vault manager will have a key. The two of you will walk in there together. Both of you will insert and turn your keys. That will open the hatch. When you open it, you will see... Basically nothing. You'll see a metal box that's closed up, that's sleeved into that safe deposit space. You will pull that out, and then they will have some area you can go to for privacy uh, where you control what is seen and unseen and what goes in your box so that you can take things, add things, inventory, whatever it is you want to do. And there is no problem with a safe deposit box from a standpoint of general day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, even the Jam Bullion article mentions things like bank holidays and stuff like that. Yeah, you can only get there when your bank is open. And when they say bank holiday, they mean things like if the market crashes or whatever. You know, if we get into that kind of thing where you're going to need your silver because the market crashed, uh, you're going to have indicators way, you know, way in advance. You're not going to be like, gee, everything's hunky-dory today, and then tomorrow you can't open your safe deposit box. Uh, you'll see you know, various capital controls coming in before we get to something like that. The issue... The issue, under the Patriot Act, even though a safe deposit box is not considered a financial relationship, I'm sorry, not FDIC insured and not considered a, you know, no, nobody would consider their safe deposit box a bank account, right? The Patriot Act redefines a safe deposit box as an account with a financial institution, What you have in there isn't your account, but your rental of the space is an account with the financial institution. That's the technicality. What this means is if you came under some sort of scrutiny uh, where the IRS could seize your bank accounts or something like that, they could, in theory, even if it's not related to national security, because the... This, the, the Patriot Act did this under the auspices of protecting Americans from terrorists, but it made it did not say that you had to be a terrorist for this to happen. All it did was redefine. It just redefined by U.S. law. A safe deposit box is now considered a financial relationship with a financial institution and the customer. So under that definition. Any government agency that would be able to seize your bank account would be able to then basically lock you out of your safe deposit box and potentially have it breached and inventoried and or seized. So the risk of a safe deposit box with anything is that it could be subject to something like IRS seizure or something like that. If you're not worried about that, then that doesn't really matter. Should you worry? I don't know. Sometimes I feel like no, and sometimes I feel like, you know, they they come up with some bullshit all the time. Certainly, anybody that runs their own business can run afoul of the IRS uh, in a big way, specifically businesses that do between about $900 and $3 million. Those are kind of the cherry pick for audit businesses. Any business that does large volumes of cash transactions, that does large volumes of bank deposits, 
there are businesses who have been flagged as being doing what's called structuring, uh, where you're doing small, large numbers of small deposits to avoid, uh, you know, $10,000 reporting requirements and things like that. Uh, or a suspicious activity reports, even if you're not doing that, uh, they have gone in and locked down accounts. So I don't trust the IRS, but that doesn't mean that I would fully and wholly not use a safe deposit box. I just might not use it for you know all of my plan B, so to speak, is the way I would look at it. I think a safe deposit box is a wise tool when used properly in a limited uh, format. One of the great uses for safe deposit box might be If you maintain a second residence or something like that, uh, or you often travel to an area, having a certain amount of, uh, of stuff maintained in that area in a safe deposit box, you know it's about as secure as it could get. And as, at least during banking hours, it would always be available to you if you ended up there in some kind of a bad way or something like that. Uh, just some thoughts on that. But in general, I think your silver and your gold and your home should be in fire safes and stored where they would be difficult, if not impossible, to find. Uh, and I'll just say that, you know, if you were to break into my house, you might find a fire safe that's really, really heavy, uh, that might take up all of your effort to get it out of the house. And then when you got wherever you were and managed to break it open, you would be highly disappointed. I'm just saying, you know, it might be worth... You know, going to Goodwill and seeing if everybody sold a fire safe and then making that one the easy one to find and then filling it up with really heavy, worthless crap. Just just saying because, you know, the person finds that, they think, holy crap, I got it. I am, I'm bailing out and I got all the good stuff and this is the one to take and run. And, you know, they find it full of like, I don't know, maybe lead shot for reloading shotgun shells. They might just wish they had maybe looked a little harder. Just saying, you know, deception is really a cool thing at times. Uh, let's take another one. Uh, real quick one here from Jeff Gleason, the Berkey guy. He says, I hope you, Dorothy, and all your family are doing well. Have a Merry Christmas. We found out today the Berkey company, New Millennium Concepts, is raising prices on Berkey systems starting January 14, 2019. It's impossible to let your audience low leading up to the date. Also, to put a note on your site, Uh, your audience is very loyal and very kind to us to pur and purchase regularly, even when things seem to have slowed down as a whole. We still get lots of business from the TSP audience. Also, the Black Berkey elements will go from $107 to $120, and most other Berkey products will rise in price. We'll be still offering the same deal to MSB members. That won't change, but the, the underlying prices are going up. I just think that's great that Jeff told you guys that. If you've been thinking about investing in Berkey, uh, this would be a good time before the price increase. And then the other thing is, um, 13 bucks a set on the elements on an increase in price. If you're kind of getting to where you should probably replace the elements in your Berkey, yeah, go ahead and get a set. And they pretty much last forever, so maybe get a couple sets. And uh, Jeff's just been a really great supporter of the show for going on almost eight years. And uh, Berkey, I, you know, I own and use and love my Berkey myself. And uh, I, I want to kind of point out why this is even, like, possible. So Berkey, unlike a lot of companies, maintains a relatively small number of distributors. And they actively police what those distributors can do so that you don't have one guy basically peeing in the pool and devaluing the entire market. They actually set minimum prices that you can charge. Um, sales and specials are tightly controlled. It's a very controlled distribution channel. Uh, they also, in return for that, 
take good care of the distributors, and they keep them highly informed. And that's why Jeff is able to even tell us this. Uh, next up, there's an article in Popular Mechanics. This comes from Ryan. It's a growing food and coal mines. What would that look like back in Pennsylvania? thought you might have an educated opinion on this. And it's this abandoned coal mines could be the future of farming. To be fair, before I eviscerate this, this is, this is coming out of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom has a shit ton of abandoned coal mines and a shortage of land for farming. But the basic plan is this. They would make these robotic things that go up and down on elevators and have these uh, multi-stage uh, underground farms running under artificial lights um, with misting systems and primarily grow what farms like this always grow, leaf crops. Uh, Fast-growing, fast-turnover crops, and that's going to feed the world. This is just a litany of problems with this. First of all, that probably is, I don't mean the lights in the robots and stuff like that. As a farmer, as a small-scale farmer, fast-growing leaf crops are the most profitable thing you can grow. And if you want to be a small-scale farmer, it's where you should put your effort. Lettuce, chard, greens, spinach, collards, etc. Right? Microgreens. Baby greens. This is the place to make your money. It is fast. It's a premium. It tastes good. And if it's grown right, though they're talking about doing hydroponics here, and unless there's very specific sense of additives done the right way with hydroponics, it's not going to be nutrient dense. And it's still iffy on the nutrient dense otherwise. Um, you can be good nutrients. You can be good quality. You can be good flavor. You can be healthy. You can lack impurities, and you can grow this stuff. You cannot feed the world with it. There's not enough caloric value. There's not enough energy in it. You, you can grow massive ass tons of lettuce. It is good for you. It's roughage. It's fiber. It's nutrients. It's very lean on calories. It's one of the reasons salad is such a good thing to eat, because it takes up lots of bulk, for a little caloric intake, and that way you eat less of the high-calorie things that make us all fat, right? And I do think it's healthy, but you have if you want to feed people and get them to survive, as bad as it is, you know, corn does that, wheat does that, barley does that, potatoes do that. These are much longer-duration crops, and they show us the flaw with growing indoors, I didn't say growing indoors is always wrong, but they show us it's flawed. Because space is at such a premium, because we're providing light from artificial sources, etc., because we're doing multiple inputs, we have to be a fast turnover crop or that space cannot produce enough to justify its use. So that's, that's problem one. We can't grow the staple crops that provide the caloric yield necessary to feed people, which is the premise that we need to do this to feed people. This sounds to me like a company with a good PR firm that wants investment money to be able to do this under the auspices of saving the world. What they really want to do is try to make something profitable and pay for it with other people's money. That's just how I feel. The next thing is, even if we're going to grow things like this, humidity is a problem and air circulation is a problem. All of these crops, these leaf crops that grow fast, quick, etc., are subject to things like dampening off and mold. 
Um, they, they, this is why, you know, they work, people are like, how much more humid can you get than aquaponics and, and doing deep rafting, uh, for lettuce crops and all? Actually, a lot more humid. Because in that environment, you have open airflow and you have a lot of oxygen in the water being delivered to the roots. Most of these systems, not only do they have like an aquaponic system recirculating that goes to the fish and waterfall, they're actually running active air pumps into that big open expanse and all those little air bubbles, and that just turns on the root growth, and those plants do really well. Uh, you're putting plants now in a hydroponic system in a coal mine where it's always wet. I don't think it'll work well. I could be wrong, but I don't think you'll get good growth rates in that environment. It's too damp. I've been in coal mines. As a teenager, I worked in a bootleg coal mine with my father. Now, one of the things that's being made as a, a good thing here is it's always about 68 to 72 degrees. So you don't have to heat it, and it's never too hot, and it's never too cold. That's true. But rapid growth of these type of plants actually is better around 80 to 85 degrees. So you're going to have a slower growth rate, and you're going to have dampening off problems. And you have an energy sink input. Then you have to have this, <coughs> this elevator system constantly going up and down. And you're, now you're, see, I just, I, I think overall it's a dumb idea. I think it's, you know, and I'll tell you one of the ways you know that these types of stories are generally dumb ideas. Um, and it can, it's, it, it's very common in farming uh, and other things to do with food production. But it's also a lot of, you know, energy, uh, all, all different types of sectors have this stupidity kind of factor in them. These are people that put the, the, the cart way ahead of the horse. And the way you know that when you read the article, everything is a, is a pictogram. It is an artist's rendering. It is a diagram. It is, there's never a picture Of like the guy actually, you know, cutting beet greens out of the coal mine. Uh, also, just look at that and think the toxin potential load down there is huge. And people would say, but Jack, you know, you're going to be doing uh, hydroponics. So you're going to have your water tank and that's closed. Then you have your little hydroponic dealy whoppers that all your plants go into. Uh, so you're never touching the ground. Yeah, but the air in there, man, I mean, I, I don't want my food grown in a coal mine. Um, now, could we reach a point where maybe we have to? Possibly. Is there a way that this makes sense? Maybe. You know what? I think I would grow in this environment. What likes it dark, cool, and wet? Mushrooms. Seems like a great place to grow mushrooms. Does not seem like a good place to grow lettuce. Next up from Sean. Sean says, Hey Jack, listening to your question from a guy who wanted to improve his wife's credit, a little feedback on your advice. I've been in various banking jobs involving credit for 15 years. Let me tell you what that is to me. Credibility. Okay. Uh, what you stated, it commonly held beliefs, but misses some finer points. Number one, the idea of using credit cards to build a rating is sound, as you pointed out. And while we want to avoid debt, the Dave Ramsey, I want a, fi a zero FICO is a bad idea. As sooner or later, almost all of us will borrow money for a house and maybe some kind of financial jam. I want to hold there for a second. Dave Ramsey is an example of a man whose advice was good when he started giving it and has failed to adapt to the changing reality of the marketplace. Dave Ramsey's advice was, 
if you have money and you can put 20% down on your house and you're not living on credit and you have a good history of paying your bills, you can go to a bank that underwrites its own mortgages and they won't care what your FICO score is and they'll give you a loan. And 25 years ago, when he started giving that advice, it was true, and it ain't no more. Okay? So I'm, I'm in, in agreement here with Sean. Anyway, back to his point one. Anyhow, your method of charge and pay the same day will not work the way you want. I accept that. I don't know because I don't do this. Um, a credit card company reports the balance on the day the statement closes. You could run thousands through your card, but the bureaus will show that you're not using the card if you do the charge and pay method, excepting if you are charging on the day the statement closes and it reports. All you get is wasted effort. I've seen it happen. Solution. Get a card with a grace period for interest or just consider the small interest charge the cost of doing business while you build. And remember, it's not just those balances, but the time that matters, i.e. age of the card. It's going to take a few years for it to work. So if you get your card tomorrow, you will not have better in, uh, uh, credit into two billing cycles, basically, is what he's saying. Okay, so then this is my modified advice, because I accept feedback, and I listen to people to know about areas that I do not. Based on what Sean from Pennsylvania just told me, if you wanted to use a credit card to rebuild your credit or to improve your credit because you want long-term ability to get things like mortgages or you know car payments, because those are like the only two forms of debt I'm kind of okay with, uh, or business debt, right? any one of those things, then what I would advise you to do is you find out the date your card closes, Okay, the date that statement closes, not the date you get it, right? Because it's already it's already there, it's already happened. You need to know what that date is. Set up whatever kind of automatic payment plan you can for it, and the day after it closes, or the day that it closes, I would say the day after to be to be sure you're getting this to work for you. Make the full payment. So basically, you run it like a checkbook. And if it closes on the 15th, on the 16th, if you had $850 worth of charges that month, you make that payment. And you can figure out, you know, kind of if there is any interest charge or whatever, what that's going to be uh, is, a, is kind of a, a floating percentage. And you, you can just make that payment. If you overpay a little bit, that's fine. That's okay. That won't be a demerit. But, I mean, paid on time every time. Because, like I said, bringing a credit card into your home is like bringing a rattlesnake into your home. I know people that have rattlesnakes. I know one guy, he has rattlesnakes. He has freaking cobras. He's never been bit. He's never going to get bit. I have a lot of respect for the guy. He knows exactly how to handle his animals, and he's not going to get bit. Okay? Most people, if they bring a rattlesnake into their home, they're going to get bit. Especially if they don't have any experience dealing with and handling and taking care of reptiles. And they don't have the proper equipment, etc. And the, the proper equipment with a credit card is the right mindset and personal financial discipline. So I think that if you're going to bring the rattlesnake, and if you said, Jack, I'm going to bring the rattlesnake into my home, I'd say then you need a, a, you know, this is the type of containment system that you need to get first. This is how you need to set it up. This is the hook that you should have. This is the clamp that you should have. This is the bag that you should have. These are the feeding tongs that you should have. This is where you should be getting your, 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 your animals. This is the veterinary support that you might need at some point because certain things are going to be beyond your ability. Like if the thing gets a stuck shed and it has eye caps over it, you're not going to be the one to, to grab it behind the head and pull the eye caps off of it because you don't know what you're doing. And I would give you the full toolkit you needed to do that. So I'm saying with your credit cards, that mindset and that full toolkit needs to be, I don't spend any money on this card that I wouldn't have spent right out of my checking account right now. 
and on this day I make full payment. However that works for your credit is best, I'm okay with that, but then that's what you do. Number two, co-signer. Elevating a person from co-signer to signer means nothing. Both get reported to the bureaus as on the loan. I've had customers complain that they were just a co-signer on a bad loan. Going further, the lender can sue either for the full amount for non-payment. I see what you are trying to establish, and it will not hurt to put their name first, but neither will it help. Just wanted to give some feedback. Keep on doing what you're doing, Sean. So what Sean's saying is, if I go in and co-sign for my son on a car, um, it does as much for his credit as if he was the primary and the other way around, where if I was the primary and he was the co-signer. And I actually did exactly that, and I guess it did help his credit because he had no problem renewing a lease and getting a new car, um, where he had almost no credit the first time around. So when we went in, they said, if we make him the primary and you the co-signer, then this is going to be a $212 a month payment because your credit is perfect, Mr. Spirico. If we make you the, the, the primary and him the co-signer, Uh, we can do a deal for you for $149 a, a month on a brand new car. And I said no. And then we left. I'm true story. And then they said we could do $129. And then I said to my son, do you want to do this? Because I can't get you a better deal than that. He said yes. So I got him a brand new Nissan Altima with $1,000 down for $129 a month uh, on a lease, which is just crazy good deal. And, uh, yes, it's better than buying the car. We did the math. Uh, <laughs> there's no world in which it wasn't a better deal. Don't, don't go there with me. Uh, but that, so what, what Sean is saying is that did every bit as much for his credit to make good on 36 consecutive payments on that lease and not miss any as if we had flipped it around. He's also saying that it could hurt, if I was just the co-signer, it could hurt me just as bad as if it was a, if it was a loan for me including if he wasn't in it at all, that it's just as bad to default as a co-signer on a loan as it is to default on a loan that is yours and yours alone. And that I, I knew that was true, but I did not know that it was as helpful to the co-signer as in regard to their credit score. I had never heard that before, and uh, Sean, thanks for letting us know that. Next up, last question of the day, it comes in from Michael. Michael says... At what age would you recommend a child be introduced to firearms, and what type of gun would you provide a good introduction with? I have a seven-year-old daughter. I've owned a handgun for the past four years, and two years ago I brought a couple bolt-action rifles and a shotgun. I've gone hunting for the past two seasons. I love being able to literally put meat on the table uh, from the deer I hunt. I would like to get my daughter involved with hunting, but I do not know the right age to start having her interact with guns. Do I start with my 9 millimeter? No. Um, or do I buy an air pellet gun or to get her comfortable any advice you can give is greatly appreciated keep doing what you're doing michael from longwood florida michael actually my favorite thing to train new shooters with is airsoft and i'll, I'll give you the advantage to that over a pellet gun bb gun etc uh, number one uh, with some you know moderate exceptions like yes you can shoot somebody's eye out with an airsoft gun uh and probably more likely to happen because people shoot each other with airsoft guns than at least generally shoot each other with bb guns um they're in general safer uh and you can generally shoot them just about anywhere um you you know a backyard or whatever it's hard for a neighbor to even make a complaint to law enforcement that you know there's any danger because well we're shooting an airsoft toy it's not even a pellet gun or a bb gun Uh, it's easier to provide a backstop for. If you have a basement or a garage, you can just hang up a sheet and 
your airsoft pellets not only will hit that sheet and fall to the ground, they'll be reusable. You shouldn't do it. Okay, if you have like a $400 professional training AR platform like I do, you probably don't want to put those back in there, even though they probably wouldn't hurt anything. But if you have a, you know, a, a, a $15, $20 gun you're training a 7-year-old with, put them back in there. The, the gun will break before the pellets will do any damage anyway. That's, that's, it's a throwaway tool for training. Uh, so that actually is my favorite first step for training. But let's talk about this introduction to guns thing. A child should be introduced to guns and gun safety before they are ever allowed to touch one, fire one, play with one, put their hands on one, disassemble one, clean one, uh, you know, anything with them. They sh the first introduction is the concept that this is a gun. You do not touch this. Uh, this will be put away where you can't get to it anyway, but if somehow, some way, someday, uh, before we've agreed that you are ready, you see one, you don't touch it, you come tell me. This is not for you. This is dangerous, and it can hurt you, or it can hurt somebody else unless it's used properly. And this is the initial introduction. It's not for you without me. Then we can start talking about introducing children to using guns. I personally do not want to put a handgun into the hand of a child until such time as I am relatively comfortable with their performance with a long gun, simply because it's easier to make a mistake with a handgun. It's easier to make a mistake. It's harder for you to supervise the shooter with a handgun. A rifle has a long barrel. When that barrel starts to move, You see a magnified movement in the barrel. You have a place you can reach out and gain control of the barrel and control of the child. A pistol can just, you, kid turns around, next thing you know, you're muzzled. So I don't want to put a pistol in the hands of an inexperienced shooter, period. I don't care if they're seven or 70. I want to start you with a long gun. When we finally move into the realm of firearms, from the world of the BB gun, the pellet gun, the airsoft gun, I want to go to a 22. I always want to go to a 22, a 22, a 22, a 22. But what about a 22? But I was thinking a 22. That's where I'm going to go first. It is a real gun. It works like a real gun. It sounds like a real gun. It's dangerous like a real gun, so it makes that point. It's cheap. It has a low recoil signature of almost nothing. It doesn't scare the kid. And it's available in a variety of configurations. And I want a bolt action. I want a bolt action. And I'm going to treat it like a single shot. I don't care if it is a single shot. I'm going to treat it like a single shot. We are going to load one round into it. It is going to be fired downrange. We are going to properly eject the cartridge. We are going to learn gun safety. We're going to learn to keep our finger off the trigger until we are ready to pull the trigger. We're going to learn about backstops. We're going to learn about not pointing the gun at anything unless I am comfortable destroying it. And once I get confidence in that new shooter from using that 22, now I can begin considering moving them up over time into other weapons. With a child, I think something like a youth model Marlin 22 that is sized to that child makes a lot more sense than your, you know, model 25N or whatever. Having a child shoot a gun that is not properly sized to their body is one of the reasons that people develop horrible habits when it comes to shooting. If you look online and you see people shooting, 
you will see tons of people leaning back. I hate to lean back. It's just, ugh. I want to reach in and fix the person, right? But they're leaning way back. Like the gun they're holding up weighs a thousand pounds or something. Uh, not always, but in many instances, that person was taught to shoot as a child, and somebody put a gun in their hands that was too heavy, too long, and uncomfortable for them to shoot, and they developed that habit early on. So I want scaled-down, sized-down gun. I think, in spite of what I said about Airsoft, the things like the little Daisy 105 PAL and things like that, like the, the scaled-down Red Rider and stuff, the, those are great. those are great first guns to shoot with. I don't think you need to be in any race to get a kid's hands on an actual firearm. You know, I mean, you want to take your kid hunting? Well, until they're old enough that they're going to go out and actually hunt, then a BB gun does everything. And I think a slow scaling into things. Now, you know, I grew up when I got my first BB gun, I was like eight. My grandfather took me out for a day with it, became confident that I wasn't going to shoot windows out of out of apartments or dogs or something like that with it, and I was going to be stupid with it. And I picked it up and went outside anytime I wanted to with it. I, and, you know, would I do that with a kid today? I don't know. Are they me as an 8-year-old or the average 8-year-old? I think I'll have to make a determination on that as I go based on the individual and, and what I see. You know, by the time I was 13, I'd grab a 22 and head up the mountain, and no one, no one even thought twice about it. I wouldn't do that today for legal liability reasons, even if I trusted the kid. Um, but you got you got to do this slowly. But the first firearm is a 22, and the first introduction has nothing to do with them touching the gun. It has to do with learning the rules, the respect, the procedure. And the first procedure is if you see a gun, and It's not in daddy's hands. You need to tell daddy that you saw a gun. Now, if you see a cop walking down the road and he has a gun, then we know that cops have guns. If you go over to Billy's house and Billy has an old school gun cabinet and the guns are locked up in it and they kind of look like dad's guns are locked up, then that's fine. I don't really need to know that. If Billy tells you that his dad carries a gun, as long as he's not a drug dealer, I don't care. Right? But if you see a gun out, just laying out, then you need to come tell Daddy about it. You don't touch it. You don't let anybody else touch it. You come tell me about it. And if it's in our house, something's wrong, because I don't do that with my guns, so something's up. And you teach that respect for the gun and that adherence to your instruction. You are the primary instructor, period. You set the rules. You, you lay them down. You expect them to be followed. When you get there, then you go into some hands-on. You do that with a safe, non-destructive device like a BB gun, pellet gun, or airsoft gun. You develop the confidence in both yourself and the individual because there's nothing that makes a person nervous like when their instructor's nervous. And there's nothing that makes a firearm instructor nervous like a person handling a gun improperly who hasn't handled a gun before and is doing things like muzzling people and putting their finger on the trigger when they shouldn't. So if we develop the habit with something that's safe, even even a toy, a flat-out toy like Pop Gun, and we learn proper procedure first. I'll tell you what makes me smile. When I see little kids playing war, and they do still do it, and they've got their little plastic guns and shit, and you see the kid, right, and he's got his gun, 
And they're going to shoot each other. They, you know, point. Remember, as a kid, you used to probably do it when you were a kid too. If you're my age, you see somebody in the woods, you point the gun and go, "Bang, you're dead!" And they have to count to ten, and you run away or whatever. And you see kids playing like that. In rare instances, it happens anymore. And you look at the kid's got his finger right, and he's got his finger indexed on the side of the gun, not on the trigger. I'm like that. That kid's dad's got it going, or mom, one or the other, right? That kid's got it going on. You know, he's he knows what he's supposed to be doing. And so we can even use toys to tr teach proper behaviors. And again, that's where we're going to start with behavior, with code of conduct, right? With respect. We get past that. You show daddy that you understand the rules. I ask you, what is, you know, first rule of firearm safety, and you repeat it to me. I ask you, what should you do if you see a gun? You repeat it to me, right? I ask you all these things, and you show me that you've learned and that you're excited and that you want to know more, then we'll talk about getting you, you know, an airsoft gun or a BB gun, and we'll get out and we'll do some shooting together. We'll have some fun and it'll be safe. And when you do that long enough, then we'll talk about a 22. And when you do that well enough, we'll talk about moving up. We'll talk about taking you out hunting with daddy. You do that, you're going to make a young, responsible gun owner that's going to turn into a person that has a lifelong appreciation for the Second Amendment a lifelong appreciation for firearms and outdoors, and is going to teach their children, grandchildren, uh, nieces, nephews, etc., the same thing. And it really is that simple. But, again, start with procedure before you worry about what gun. And handguns and me, just to me and kids, no. No. Not, and I, I'm not, let, me, let me clear that up. I'm not saying that you, know, you have to be 21 to shoot a handgun or 18 to shoot a handgun. I'm saying that I don't want you there first. I hope that's clear. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up for today. So with that, if you like this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us is by just doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That website, tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you see all of my Amazon reviews. You can see the most current reviews. Remember, if I review it, I own it. It's in my home. I spent my money on it. If I needed another one, I would go buy it again, or I will not recommend it to my audience. My brand, it, guys, it's all about integrity. Uh, you, you come to this house, you start looking through the stuff, it looks like a T-Spaz catalog, because that's what it is. Uh, today's item of the day that I've reviewed for you guys is, is no different. It's Fletcher's Federal Pepper Mill. It's a pepper mill for grinding pepper. It's 35 bucks, and that's on sale, because it normally sells for $50. And you might wonder why somebody would pay $50 for a freaking pepper mill. Um, I'll tell you the story. Uh, many years ago, before I started TSP, it's like 11, almost 12 years ago now, I had, you know, I've, I've been a foodie my whole life. I've always loved food. I've always loved cooking. I've always loved working in the kitchen, etc. And uh, I've always been a fan of, of cracked pepper because that's the only kind of pepper worth having. If you buy pre-ground pepper, it dries all the oils out. It doesn't have any good flavor, smell. Most of the flavor is in the aroma and the oils. Um, so I had always had pepper mills. And I had always you know, had a pepper mill for two or three months, and then it just doesn't work right, and you throw it away, and you get another one, and that doesn't work right. And why is it so hard to get a good pepper mill? So my wife suggested we go to the store. It was like a gourmet cook store, and it was, it was an overpriced kind of place. Everything was priced. You know, the individual pan might be eight hundred dollars. I mean, there's nothing here I'm going to buy. And I find this pepper mill. And back at the time, these mills were made uh, by Vic Firth, who's a famous drummer and had a drumstick company, actual drumsticks and bum 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 drumming. Uh, and it got merged into Fletcher's, and it's the same mills. I've checked all that out. Uh, but the, the 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 sales pitch on the little tag of this pepper mill was the last 
pepper mill you will ever buy. And I just thrown away another one. And I uh, mumble, mumble, grumble, grice, bro. Forty nine. And my wife's like, "What?" And I tell her, and she goes, "Well, it's it's probably worth it if it's true, isn't it?" So I'm like, "Well, yeah, I guess." So I went over and I asked this lady behind the counter, like, you know, what's 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 your policy on products like this? She goes, well, that has a lifetime warranty with the manufacturer, but we guarantee everything in the store for one year from date of purchase unless you abuse it. I said, what does abuse mean? She goes, if you drive over with your truck, it's abuse. I went, oh, okay. So I bought it. I used it last night when I cooked. It, the, the, the finish is starting to wear off of it. It still works flawlessly. 11 years. That's why I recommend this thing. Uh, it really will be the last pepper mill you ever, ever buy. My maintenance for it is whenever it's empty and I go to fill it, I take the top off, I turn it upside down, I bang out all of the excess dust, and I fill it back up. And I've done that for 11, almost 12 years. And it still works. That's why I recommend it. Great gift for the foodie in your life. $35 on sale right now, $15 off. Mine's 11 years old, and I still have it, and I still recommend it. That's the kind of, you know, buy once, buy once, cry once. When it's a tool, and I think about this, right? Like, so it's, it's a pepper mill. It's a pepper mill. If you're like me, you use a pepper mill every single day of your life unless you eat out that day and don't eat at home. Like, it, it, with lunch or dinner, one or the other or both, I'm reaching over and grabbing that pepper mill. It's a mechanical device that I use every day of my life. When you look at the lifetime cost of things, it just makes sense to invest in the best that you can afford. Uh, and there are certainly ones that cost more, but the best that you can afford from a price-to-value ratio, that's the Fletcher's Pepper Mill. Uh, next up, you can always support us by joining the MSB. That's all I'll say about that today. But just, guys, MSB is how I pay the bills. Consider becoming a member. Use the discounts. Membership pays for itself. Learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. And that brings us to our song of the day. Now, um, John Adam had mapped out the music for the rest of the year. I'm going to call an audible on John for this entire week. John has a week of Christmas music for us next week as we go into Christmas. And I am a Christmas person. I am a Scrooge until November 30th. I don't want to hear about Christmas. I don't want to see your blinking lights. I don't want to see your Christmas meme on Facebook. I don't want the stores putting the stuff out. I don't want to hear ho, 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 or whatever else you're going to come up with until we get at least, at least through Thanksgiving. But kind of December 1st, that's when it's Christmas time. And once I get, now I'm the elf from the movie Elf. Oh my God, it's Christmas, right? I, I love Christmas. I, I think it's a great time of year. So I'm going to do a week of Christmas music I pick. And then I'm going to do a week of Christmas music that John Adam picks. And all of you Scrooges can go ho-ho-hum your butt off. I don't care. Go get a visit from the Christmas uh, ghost from the Scrooge or whatever. You know, I, I don't care. Those of you that are not of the religious persuasion that have Christmas, I am not either. I am not a religious person anyway. I am a secular Christmas guy. I like Christmas. And I even like a lot of the music and stuff like that that is more in the vein of the traditional religious meaning of the holiday. If you can't enjoy Christmas, I'm sorry that somebody was mean to you as a child or something, but we should all be able to enjoy Christmas in the spirit behind it. And that idea, I decided that I would come up with songs this week that aren't generally considered traditional Christmas songs. 
In other words, no Santa Claus is coming to town or Carol of the Bells or White Christmas, like songs that really aren't considered Christmas songs. Or they are Christmas songs in general, but we don't think of, you don't have carolers singing them and things like that, right? Or 500 different people didn't do covers of them, uh, you know, from Garth Brooks all the way back to Bing Crosby or something like that, like White Christmas. However, today's song is sort of an exception because a lot of people have covered it. Tons of people have covered it. And I'm doing it today just to piss off social justice warriors, even though I'm sure none of them will hear it because none of them listen to my show. Of course, we are talking about Baby It's Cold Outside. So the reason I think this song fits what I'm doing this week with Christmas music is it's not a Christmas song. Did you know that? It's it's not a Christmas song. It was from a movie, I believe, it's called Daughter of Neptune, Neptune's Daughter. It took place in Florida. It was about a guy that played water polo and another and a girl falling in love with him and her sister was there and it, it had it literally nothing to do with Christmas. It also wasn't cold outside. That was kind of the joke. Right? And 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 the guy that was the lead in it that sings the song with the actress, and I don't remember her name, is uh Ricardo Montalblanc, as in uh Mr. Rock from Fantasy Island, you know, and Khan, right, from The Wrath of Khan. That is the guy that sung the song of the movie. And he I think he was the water polo player. I've never actually seen the movie. But the version of the song I have for you uh is from Elf, the movie Elf, the kids' movie with the supposed rape anthem in it. <sighs> really? Um, and in the movie, Zoe Dashnell sings the song with Will Ferrell. They don't sing the whole thing. It's a locker room comedy thing that happens. If you haven't seen the movie, I don't know rock, what rock you've been under, but it's a pretty cool original Christmas movie. Uh, and funny as hell, and I don't think anybody else at Will Ferrell could have pulled the part off. Um, but... Um, that's not really the song for the music soundtrack because it's just kind of a, a funny spoof in the movie. Zoe Dashnell is actually a really great singer um, and a pretty good actress, uh, though I don't like most of what she's done. She was really cool in that movie, though. And she does have a really beautiful voice. Well, at the end of the movie during the credits, they play her singing the entire song with a guy named Leon Redbone as singing the male part. And it's it's what I like about Zoe's voice when she sings music like this, and it's not often that she does, unfortunately. It's very kind of 30s Billie Holiday type, you know, thing. And this guy, Leon Redbone, has kind of a very Louis Armstrong-like thing going on. So I think it's a cool song. How to become a Christmas song? Because, baby, if it's cold outside, it's got to be Christmas. Yeah. Anyway... Just my middle finger to the social justice warrior movement as we lead off this week of Christmas songs that either are not really Christmas songs or not generally thought of as classic Christmas songs. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I really can't say it's cold outside. I've got to go away. it's cold outside. This evening has been I'm hoping that you drop so in very nice I'll hold your hands there just like I My mother will start to worry Beautiful, what's your hurry? And father will
will be pacing the floor. Listen to that fireplace roll. So really, I'd better Beautiful, scream. please don't hurry. Maybe just a half a drink more. Put some records on while I pour. The neighbors might think. Baby, it's bad out there. Say. What's in this no cats to be had out there. I wish I knew like starlight to now. break the spell. I'll take your hat, your hair looks swell. I ought to say no, no, Mind no, Mind if I move in closer? At least I'm gonna say that I tried. What's the sense of hurting my pride? I really can't stay. Baby, don't hold out, ah, but it's cold outside. I simply must go. But baby, it's cold outside. The answer is baby, no. it's cold outside. This welcome has been lucky that you so in. nice and warm. Look out the window at that storm. My sister will be suspicious. Gosh, your lips look delicious. My brother will be there at the door. Waves upon tropical shore. My maiden aunt's mine. Oh, your lips look delicious. Well, maybe just a cigarette. Never such a blizzard before. I've got to get home. Baby, you'll freeze out there. Say, lend me your coat. It's up to your knees out there. You've really been great. I'll thrill when you touch my head. Don't you see? How can you do? To me. There's bound to be talk tomorrow. Think of my lifelong sound. At least there will be plenty in flowers. If you caught pneumonia and I, I really can't stay. Get rid of that holdout. How about it's cold? 